bitch, please. Oh, bitch, please, my ass. You want a sandwich? Dig that. Oh, hell yeah. She's a bad if I wasn't a Christian man, I'd probably be kicking in your ass. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the JB's Low Tech Podcast. As you can tell, my voice is a little different as I am struggling with an illness, but it won't stop the show. And today, we will learn from my guests a little bit more about that box that you sit in front of. And no, I'm not talking about the television. And find out all the good news next here on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. When you need someone to listen a lawyer you know and trust. Hi, I'm Mike Bryant. Over the years at holiday time, Bradshaw and Bryant has been able to help thousands of central Minnesotans arrive home safely from the bars. This year, we could very well be celebrating at home, but there's still lots of things that we can do to ensure that you stay safe on the roads, like slowing down, giving yourself enough time that you're not in a rush, no texting and driving, hands-free phone calls, and of course, no drinking and driving. Please be safe so that you get home to your loved ones. I'm Mike Bryant from Bradshaw and Bryant. This year, my biggest wish is that we all remain happy, healthy, and even a little more kind to one another. A lawyer who will fight with confidence and pride. Working harder, going farther. With Mike Bryant on your side. Seeking justice for the injured. Bradshaw and Bryant. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Uh, as I stated today, I wanted to learn more about a box that I sit in front of constantly. And no, I'm not talking about the television. I am talking about my computer and the things that um, we can learn to uh, make it safer and more enjoyable. And my guest today is Arthur. Uh, he his bio almost reads like he's a uh, spy, but he's not a spy. <laughs> and he's a cryptologist, and his name is Jim Hancock. How you doing, Jim? Great, man. How are you doing? Okay. Well, when you suggested the title, first I had to go look it up because I was like, does he want to talk about uh, cryptocurrency? <laughs> <That's> like, <laughs> and it's like, no. Not that. So what is a cryptologist? Yeah, so a cryptologist is somebody that deals with uh, communications in general, but from the standpoint of uh, the interception of communications, that there's a lot of different flavors of cryptologists, especially in the military. Some deal with computers, some deal with just the radio waves themselves, some deal with translation. Uh, like myself, I actually joined as what's called a cryptologic technician interpretive. And that is an individual that translates foreign languages. But I had still had to learn how to manipulate and understand radio frequency theory. And so those two things kind of go hand in hand. Um, so if you think of somebody who communicates, they're trying to make sure that a radio wave reaches another point. Mm -hmm. And then you have an individual like electronic warfare people, and they actually try to block communication. Uh, I like to sit happily in the middle and make sure everybody's talking so I get a good piece of the pie. And what do you do with that information? So it, it varies. Like most of the time it gets, it gets, uh, it, it becomes a part of, a, of the intelligence gathering process. So it, it's usually gathered to understand what's going on all around you. It's, it's sometimes used to, uh, it, for assessing and, and, and validating information that you have based upon things that are taking place in the world. Um, it, they can be used to just gain situational awareness. A lot of times is, is really what they're mostly effective for. Uh, so this could be used in the spy world or is used in the spy world. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. How do it, how it do, fits kind of in that category for sure. Okay. Yeah. So I stand, I corrected myself there. Um, so how <laughs> does one become a cryptologist? Well, so the process for it is actually, it depends upon which flavor you become. For me, I had to take a language aptitude test to see if you could learn a foreign language. 
And for the military, they have this thing called the Defense Language Aptitude Battery, otherwise known as the D-Lab. And you have to go in and see if you can learn uh, a fake language that follows a particular type of grammar pattern. And they test to see how well you can pick up those grammar patterns and how well you can listen to it and hear the changes. And then you get graded based on that. You also have to go through, a, that was just for linguists, but for other individuals, it's uh, an elaborate background test, uh, investigation that has to take place. And then you eventually have to get a clearance uh, as, your, as part of the process. Most cryptologists are also in the military, so you have to enlist in the military. And then after you've enlisted and you go through, you go through uh, those background tests and then you have to get, then you get assigned to a school. And in the military, they're all called A schools. And it doesn't, every, every job has an A school. Okay. And then during your A school, you have to graduate, of course. And so that could be very rigorous. It could be everything from learning something like Morse code. In my case, I had to learn Korean. Uh, in other people's cases, they had to learn how to do the ins and outs of uh, computers. Uh, way beyond IT, just general IT infrastructure. They have to understand how you um, gain access to and the security protocols and things like that associated with computers. And then, uh, then you have to, then when you finally get done with that, if you get your clearance, because there's a, a big rigor that goes through with that, you get assigned to a particular command that deals with that particular, that with that type of operation. And from there, you have to go through a lot of and probably six months more of rigorous oversight training. And uh, all of that is because of the fact that you may be handling sensitive information. Mm -hmm. And um, once you gain access to that, it's, it really, you have a lot of oversight to make sure that you're handling it appropriately, that you have the right to access any of it, and that you are uh, doing right by what you've been uh, basically hired to do. And so it, there's, it, I can't stress enough how much oversight there is really in that process to make sure that you are properly trained to do the job before you're ever sat down at a desk to do it. So this, uh, the cryptologist helps the uh, armed forces, which I guess you would say helps the government. And um, is it breaking codes and stealing secrets or is it, <laughs> am, am I so, just going a little too far with this? So that's, I mean, you're going to hit a wall where I can't say anything else. Okay. <laughs> but I will say that, so most of the time, yeah, cryptology involves cryptanalysis, which is the uh, the study of code. Mm -hmm. And it also, cryptography, which is the creation of code. Uh, so the the most famous cryptologists in, in my, I would say, pedigree were the ones that worked in Station Hypo in World War II that cracked the Japanese Murasaki code, mm -hmm. the purple code, which allowed us to identify the, the Japanese activity prior to Midway and right. helped us win the war. It's the same kind of work that GCHQ did out of Britain to crack the Enigma code. Oh. Um, so those were like those were like the predecessors mm -hmm. of modern cryptology. Yes, and isn't there a famous story of... Um a platoon of Native Americans who did something. Yeah, the wind, yeah, the wind talkers. Yes. Yeah, the wind talkers was a good example of uh, comms, and as opposed to a cryptologist would have been the person trying to crack the code that the mm -hmm. wind talkers were speaking. Oh, okay. If that gives you an example. Yes, that uh, clears it up for me. Yeah. Um. So, uh, our. And the reason why it's made the statement about idiot boxes, or I take it that computers are used in, in this. Yeah, computers are definitely a part of that for sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. so, there are people that specialize in the computer part of it, okay. right? Yeah. Um, if I get too close to a line, just say you can't answer that. So <laughs> it sounds like yeah. my question got a little too close there. <laughs> yeah, I can't. So you, I can say generally what they did. But okay. so like, here's the rule of thumb. It's kind of like a, a fire triangle when it comes to sensitivity with information. So a lot of people don't understand that. They'll be like, how come in one case an individual can talk about this and in another case they can't? It's when you start tying together a capability with an organization and why they're doing it. It's when you tie those three things together, all of a sudden you have a sensitive situation. So for example, if I were saying 
that I'm talking about Wi-Fi in general, how Wi-Fi works. Right. That's completely fine. But if I were to say Wi-Fi at your house, now I've just tied a location with the particular type of technology. And then if I were to say your name, your house with this, and I want this piece of information, we've just gone up an entire classification level. Right. Does that make sense? Yes. And so just the general stuff talking about, hey, what is this stuff doing? Perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that. No, I so when you start talking, yeah. No, I, I kind of get what you're talking about. Back in the dark ages in the 1980s, I was a summer student at the U.S. Attorney's Office, so I had to get an FBI clearance. And mm -hmm. um, I handled uh, case files and documents and whatnot, so I had to have a clearance to just look at the stuff, you know, yeah. so they knew, would know that I wouldn't, um, like, take stuff or change stuff or things like that. So it, it, that was probably the rudimentary type part of what you do. But I, I kind of get the, the chain of what you're doing. Um, yeah. So, and that was only that that was a, a small part of my career. And then it, it evolved. I, I, I did a lot. I was I had the opportunity to work in a lot of different spaces and, sure. and do different things that eventually kind of even went away from that. Um, my last job in particular was pretty far away from what I originally joined the Navy to do, you know. Yeah, because I, I noticed that you um, you talk about things like robots and yeah, <laughs> is uh, should we be afraid of robots? <laughs> <laughs> that is afraid you are of cars, right? Okay. So, yeah. So, um, yeah. Well, to give you a little bit more history, I, I eventually uh, got in, started working with a program where I became uh, embedded with and started working with a lot of special operations units. Okay. And one of the, but then towards the end of my career, I got pulled into this organization that we call the Future Concepts and Innovation Directorate. Right. And I worked a lot with emerging technology. And that's kind of what I focused on probably the last seven years of my career. And instead of just the straight stick cryptology type route, I was now going off after things that currently the military and government weren't really focusing on because they it was very nascent in technology and robots were a big part of that especially autonomy and artificial intelligence and mm -hmm. i had i effectively became a subject matter expert in that field as i helped develop a lot of different types of technologies so that it could be employed in useful ways and but if you were to ask me hey do you, are you afraid of them the answer is like no it, it's a tool just like anything else and as much as science fiction would try to make us think that <laughs> right. Terminator's on, on the verge, like it's so far away, I can't even begin to describe uh, the, the difficulty of it. There, there are certain things that when in their isolated use case mm -hmm. have scary implications. And I, I agree with that, especially when you're talking about something like OpenAI's ChatPT. Uh, um, that is, um, it, it's a very good example of isolated artificial intelligence as a tool but when you talk about like robots being able to think for themselves, I mean, that's like I, I make this analogy within the within the uh, uh, robotics community. But it's kind of like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. Okay. It, it may be a problem someday, okay. but it's yeah. not going to be any of our grandchildren or great, great, great grandchildren's problems. OK, so yeah. the robot that turned on us is nowhere near in the future, you would say. No, <laughs> okay. no. Well, that's no. a good thing. I, I never thought yeah. of it happening but i was just wondering <laughs> so yeah well, that's good so with what a cryptologist does and uh the uh, autonomy stuff that you were dealing with does that wind up becoming stuff that becomes uh better everyday use stuff for the common person Absolutely. So one of the things, especially when it comes to like machine learning algorithms, mm -hmm. the vast majority of the time when people employ them, they're using them to automate functions that require lots of steps. And when you remove a lot of those steps, it makes it easier for people to employ it. And the two main use cases. So usually when you talk about autonomy or artificial intelligence, it's, it's really they're trying to solve one of three main problems. Um, things that are they're looking for solving problems that are dull dirty and dangerous. And so if you're, if it's an area you don't want to access to because it's dirty, like a cleaning a septic tank, mm -hmm. or if it's dangerous, like going into a collapsed mine, 
or if it's just straight up boring, like physical security, this is where machine learning become and, and robotics become very, very effective because that human that normally would just have to be standing there staring at a street for 12 hours now no longer has to sit there. Uh, the person that was normally cleaning the septic tank or climbing inside, a robot can go in there and scrub it out for you, right? right. Or in the case of uh, like search and rescue, you can send a robot into an environment as opposed to sending a person in in case it collapses. And those are perfect examples of ways that things that could be used both for the military and for just general use are uh, extremely helpful. So these uh, algorithms? Mm -hmm. Are these are similar to or the same ones at some point that like my iPhone uses to cause stuff to pop up or the television that catches on to I watch like uh, stand up comedy a lot so it suggests stand up comedy is that yeah is that similar so yeah so there's there's a couple things going on there those are examples of things like uh, what are called uh, there's different types of machine learning, usually referred to them as trained or untrained neural networks. Mm -hmm. And a trained one is one that already has a baseline idea of how it wants to work and you can't manipulate it. But an untrained neural network is one that you kind of just add information to and it adapts to whatever you're doing. So in the case of people using their phones, the phone is doing two things. When you interact with it and press buttons on it, it's remembering what you pressed and it's remembering what things fit in that category so they can remind you of more things like that. And if it's hearing things, your phone actually, especially if you have something that's Android based mm -hmm. is listening to things around you and it certain they're actually like within the advertisements we listen to or watch on television, your phone can hear those and cue in on certain frequencies and it'll actually start cueing you through advertising, advertising of things that you've been listening to because it, it, it knew that you're watching it. Um, that stuff is, is all over. It's embedded in a lot of things. And so the systems around us are constantly listening to stuff and learning from it and then tweaking it. The thing about it is it's, it's scary if you don't know that it's doing that or right. why it's doing it. Mm -hmm. And then you find yourself being like, because it, it can be alarming when all of a sudden you just were talking about something with someone and then the advertisement appears on your phone. Uh, that is, I, I know I find that slightly invasive, right? Where right. you're just like, Who's doing that, right? Those, right. That's, they're designed to do that. And, and you got, we, what a lot of people don't realize is when we were using our phones and we sign user agreements, mm -hmm. we're saying it's okay for them to do that oh. because it's in the fine print. We click and say yes. Right. Um, but nobody reads the fine print ever. Yeah. You know, TikTok is a really good example. That one, the privacy settings on TikTok are hardly even there. Um, they take everything and just put it into their database. And then that's how they feed their algorithm. So is that why... Everyone is so afraid of TikTok? Yeah, that's one of the reasons. The other is China. Which is? Well, the servers are all stored in China. Okay. And so here's, okay, so one thing to understand about machine learning, mm -hmm. artificial intelligence, and things like that is they, they are useless without data. Right. Data, since 2015, data is more valuable than oil. Okay. Uh, people literally create these lakes of data that they can store information in, and then they'll just sell pieces of that data. And that's how people advertise most of the time. Predominantly, it's used for marketing. However, there are other things that you can do with it. So with China, what's interesting about them is, is they don't have any qualms about people's personal security. Right. And so that they will aggregate as much data as they possibly can, and then they tie it into like their social credit system, which is how they score you based upon how loyal you are to the party. Right. And they, but they can take your social media, and they can take, they can take uh, your daily activities. They can take your locations. Uh, they can take uh, how your facial recognition. They can take all those things and tie them together, and then they add them into the score to determine whether or not you're loyal or a threat. And TikTok, because of the fact that its servers are located in China, is a potential source for that data as well. And that's why people are like, we got to get, a, a either buy it out so that there's a different variant that's owned in the West right. or stop using it altogether. And that's why there was a big, big deal about it probably several years back during the previous administration. Correct. Uh, and I, and it keeps coming back up. It's the right. same problem like the one with uh, Huawei, uh, the Chinese cellular company, because mm -hmm. they were effectively using their same data access to feed into a larger pool. Well, not only, not only that, but some people are, are worried about 
our children are spending way too much time on it to begin with to yeah. um you know for their latest dance or their stupid um challenges <laughs> or whatever it may be yeah um but it's because it's tied into it feeds the endorphins right because your brain right likes this constant feed and it's just we're not wired to be, have access to information that way and uh, we've just become very, very good at identifying what those things are, and they're creating apps that feed into it better. And so it's always good to be able to disconnect. I know with my kids, it's always like, I know if I tell them to turn it off, I can tell by how bad their connection is to it by their emotional reaction to it. Right. And when my daughter was really tiny, she she was she would watch YouTube kids sometimes, and she started getting really obsessed with those videos where kids were just like open toys and open packages or like yeah. presents with toys inside. Mm-hmm. And she got that endorphin rush and it became like almost a chemical reaction. And so we shut it off. We're like, Nope, no more YouTube. <laughs> and she has, she's 11 now and ha- we haven't watched YouTube since. Right. But because of the fact that we're like, we could see that she had this natural propensity to do that, you know, and to, to be like, she wants, she craves it almost naturally. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it's just not, that's not going to be a healthy thing for you, for her, if we just keep allowing it to be fed that way. You know? Well, isn't that what we call going down the rabbit hole? We just keep for sure. going and going yeah. and go. I mean, I go to look something up as a stupid wrestling video, and something else pops up that it's like, oh yeah, I remember that, and then something else pops up, and something else, and it's like all of a sudden an hour is gone. It's like holy crap, I need to get away. You know? Yeah. So well, and it's it, it's the same problem with like YouTube was bad because of the fact that. The, the algorithm recognized that sensational videos are the ones that are going to keep you glued to the television. Right. So you're watching things like people doing really ridiculous things, doing something that's funny or doing something that's, that's, that's just aggravating. And so it would only feed you these things with these extreme emotional examples. And that's, and then you find yourself just, yeah, like you said, down the rabbit hole. Right. Um, and, you know, it also feeds into, which started with Facebook and then moved to Twitter, then moved to TikTok and the other one I can't think of. But um, Instagram. Instagram, yeah. yeah. Where it also became, it fed people's uh, ego. You know, it For sure. made, made them like themselves more with the more likes they got. You know, they, or how or when they didn't get any, then it wasn't. Right they didn't receive the validation they needed. And that was the other part. Like that, that's that same um, exciting rush just because you get, get those likes, you know? Um, and it, it, it's an interest, it's an interesting thing that, that we've created for ourselves. But, um, and it, it's also the interesting thing is, is recognizing what the algorithm really wants. And then when you can, when you really tap into the algorithm, the algorithm's designed around activity. So for example, if you wanted to, as an author, so this was a foreign thing, not a foreign thing, but it wasn't something that I'd focused a lot. When I when I got out of the military and I wanted to start really trying to push my my book and things like that, I realized mm-hmm. I needed to create some author accounts and stuff like that, even though I hadn't touched Facebook in probably 12 or 13 years at the time. Because I just wasn't, I, I won from a security standpoint, I didn't want a social media presence. And from just in general, I just didn't find it beneficial. I didn't feel like I needed it. Right. And now though, I mean, you can't really be an author and not advertise through Facebook. It's just not, it's not a thing. Right. And so I started trying to learn, I was like, okay, how often do I need to post? How often do I need to do certain things? And it's interesting based upon when the platform was created, the amount of activity required out of you dramatically increases. So let's say for Facebook, you can get by with once a week, maybe mm-hmm. same with like LinkedIn, um, Instagram every couple days. But wow. then when you get into things like Twitter and, mm-hmm. and TikTok, you're talking about Twitter is like 12 times a day Yeah, is ideal. And then uh, it's so, yeah. So, and then the last TikTok, at least four to five times a day, you need to be posting something if you want to gain the speed that you really want. And for me, I was like, I can't, it's just not a thing. <laughs> I mean, you'll get maybe once a week out of me, but, and I won't touch TikTok. I just, it's, it's yeah. a little off brand for me. Yeah. yeah so. Yeah, I'm not a big dancer, and um, <laughs> so I don't I don't have a Instagram account or a um, or a TikTok. So even though they would tell you that to grow my podcast, I would need those. It's like, nah, 
Twitter and Facebook is more than enough for this old guy. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, the, I, when they told me that I had to post four or five times a day and make videos out of it, I was like, yeah, hard pass. Sorry. Okay. It's not happening. <laughs> right. No, no, I understand that. Um, so you have books. Uh, uh, you wanna, can you talk about those? Sure. Yeah, it's fiction. Right. I wrote a book called uh, The Hawk Enigma, mm-hmm. and it was kind of loosely based on my last job where I was the head of innovation for the SEAL teams. Okay. And, yeah, it, it's a mixture of a – yeah, so I, I published it uh, last summer, and I'm writing a sequel for it right now. And how how did it go? Uh, it's going it's going pretty well. I mean, as a debut author who's just trying to bootstrap it himself, I think I I I, I can't complain about how it's doing. Uh, I I didn't actually ever intend to become an author. Right. It just sort of it it happened. Uh, I about yeah. Short story behind that is about a few years ago. I I got. I found a little growth on my back and uh, went to the doctor and turned out to be melanoma. Mm-hmm. And then they diagnosed it as stage 1B, which was is really early, so it was good. It hadn't spread anywhere. and uh, But they had to cut about six inches of skin off my back and uh, pull a lymph node right. just to be safe. So I was lucky I didn't have to do any chemo or anything like that. But it did make me re- reconsider some things because it's one thing when you when you do a lot of deployments like I did and you – have been in firefights and, and all that kind of stuff. You, you think, you know, if something's going to, if I'm going to catch something, I'm going to catch a bullet and that's, what's really going to put the end to me. Right. I'm not right. going to die from something else early. And then, so then when I got that, it, it kind of put me in a bit of an existential loop and I really started contemplating what was going to happen. And I, and I, and I got this very, very strong impression that I needed to write. I didn't know what I was going to write or what it was going to be about. Um, and then about a year later, I was at a symposium at Caltech in this place called the Athenium. It's like this kind of a fancy restaurant slash uh, meeting uh, building there on Caltech and there in Pasadena. And they started this woman named Viviana Gradinaru, who is one of the professors there at Caltech, who's the head of the of optogenetics, came up and spoke. And I'd never heard of optogenetics. I, I, I had no idea. And she started talking about this really crazy scientific concept that, and she, how she was using machine learning to identify these very specific proteins to use in the application of this, this wild scientific process. And it's like the plot of my book just kind of hit me right then and there. And I went home and I just started writing and I just started devouring everything I could about how to write a book, how to create one, the proper writing processes just watching video after video of, of people giving advice on, on how to do it. I watched every master class I could. Uh, I just did, I just consumed it the way I would anything else that I was excited about. And about six months later, I'd written my first draft, uh, put it out to a bunch of beta readers, and then I just kept iterating on it until eventually I then went through and did all the, the uh, I try. I, I originally went the traditional publishing route, realized that it was just a very difficult market to get in, especially as a debut author. So I just was like, hey, I'm just going to do this indie and uh, put it out on my own and just uh, own everything because I'll, I'll get to own the bulk of the royalties and be my own be my own boss with it. And so that's eventually then I published right on the literally like the day I had my retirement ceremony was the book release party. That was last June. And uh, now I'm writing the sequel. Does um, do you get into some uh, which would be close to top secret stuff or you just. It's just total in the in the book. Yeah. And uh, so, even though it was fiction, I had to submit it to the Pentagon okay. for formal review to show make sure I wasn't putting out anything that was sensitive. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I, I I know what that line is very distinctly. So, but what I did go in there is I, I put in some concepts of things that I I would say that there are some things in there that are that are pretty accurate, like they're pretty realistic. But I. I, there's so many that are mixed in with fiction that you wouldn't be able to tell what's what. And uh, some of the things I would say are partially memories, some of the things that, that I kind of tweaked, and then some things are just uh, kind of narratives that I've kind of interacted with. The story itself is about a, a warfighter who has these nightmares and keeps reliving this one experience every night until one night he starts hearing this prophetic voice warning him about the future. And he's convinced when he wakes up that he's actually starting to lose his mind. And 
then he gets called from a friend of his because these a couple of scientists in Japan who are working on something called the God algorithm have gone missing and they need to find them. And so then he gets wrapped up in this whole AI war, basically, over trying to discover what these scientists were working on. But really, the story itself is is an exploration of this one individual and how he would mask and hide his post-traumatic stress mm-hmm. and in a way that people around him wouldn't pick up. Um, most of my friends that have issues with that, they they hide it in completely different ways. And this individual, he doesn't drink. He doesn't he doesn't display the issues of it. He just buries himself in his work. And so what people don't realize is that he's perpetually running from himself. But because he's so good at his job and because he doesn't drink, everybody thinks he's good Right. when that's not the case at all. It's, they should be picking up on the fact that he's a complete and total workaholic, that there's something off there. Right. Right. Yeah. And so and it, it was modeled a bit after my friends and maybe a little after myself, but I did it. Um, I tried to dissociate a lot of myself from the, from the character. So it didn't become just me writing about me. You know, so he's definitely a fictional character. So when you're in the military and you're doing your job, you're actually embedded with a, a uh, platoon, I take it. Yeah. When I was doing my job, I was embedded with uh, – I worked with pretty much every branch of Special Operations Forces for the job I did. Not every cryptologist is like that, but for what I did, that's, okay. that's what – yeah. And um, so I take it you were out – would you be out on patrol and worrying about getting shot? And um, Yeah, so without getting too specific, mm-hmm. uh, my job was to um, tell certain people where to go look for things. But in order for me to do that, I had to be there with them. And so usually I was out up front with a, a group, of, a small group of people. And then we would... Um, go and find the, what we were looking for. And then a group of, and the rest of the platoon would come up and hit the target. So I was usually the first person at the house or wherever it was we were going. So, um, does, um, does your job, and I think I kind of asked this earlier, does it advance the technology technologies that are out there? Maybe, you guys had a hand in 5G or anything like that? Well, um, I wouldn't say we had a hand in it, but we, I had to understand it. Now, 5G was something that I definitely uh, had to learn a lot about, for sure. And, um, and I know yeah. during COVID, you had certain countries who blamed 5G for COVID. Was there... <laughs> <laughs> was that, was there a, that was a funny one. Right. Uh, yeah. Is was, that possible? Yeah. Is that, yeah. Is that possible? I take by your, your response. No, no. So, okay. So here's the thing about 5g that people need to realize 5g is basically 4g on a different frequency. Okay. There is very little difference about how 5g is employed, uh, between the different generations. Um, so to give you an example, so 5G is the fifth generation, right? Mm-hmm. That means that there was a first, a second, a third, and a fourth. Okay. First generation. First generation was 1980. Right. That was like Zach Morris cell phone, Zach Morris sat phone, kind, or right. cell phone kind of kind of deal, right? The brick. And then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the big old brick ones, right? <laughs> and those um those used what's called uh to get really specific, they use what's called time division multiple access. So they they would cut up a frequency by time. That's how they were able to get you different channels. And then the next one, 2G broke it up by frequency and then within a little bit. And then you also had another uh, like Verizon would use what's called code division and they would break it up by a code. And then when you got into 3G, it just did more of that code stuff. But when you got into 4G, you ran into it. They, they started doing what's called orthogonal frequency division, multiple access, very technical term, but that just meant that they were like chopping it up with code and with time and with frequency, all those stuffs at once. And then, your phone basically has the ability to choose which frequency it wants, when it wants to use it, and it's significantly more sophisticated. And the reason why they did that is because they were running out of space on the spectrum. So it's like a road that you can only fill with so many cars. Right. And they filled it up with every car they could. And they were like, what do we do now? I can't add any lanes to the highway because this because the FCC regulates what part of the spectrum we can use. And they said, well, 
if we use this really, really high part of the spectrum, then we're good. So they went from they went from using like 700 megahertz to going all the way up to 28 or 38 gigahertz. And now your frequency, the width of your highway went from two lanes to six. And so now you've got a whole bunch more information you can put in there. But they didn't change how the road is traveled. Does that make sense? Yes. You're still kind of doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. it, there are there are differences. I'm being very simplistic about it, but right. there wasn't any magic there. It wasn't like it suddenly changed the physics <laughs> or that you could suddenly shoot a virus through it. <laughs> that's right. why it makes me laugh. Is that's just, what are you talking about? <laughs> so, um, but at those higher frequencies, yes, it, it, you start getting it. Those higher frequencies do have a different impact on on things, but the the it, that all depends upon how much power you put through them. And at those levels, they're putting really low power, but they're only good at a really short distance. And so the benefit of it is you can have a really, really tiny radio and you could put it in something like a light or you could put it in a street, a street light or you could put it on a lamp or you could put it in inside of anything all around. And that's where these smart city concepts based on 5G come from is they can put a whole bunch of these little cell towers all over the place. Mm -hmm. And then your reception gets amazing because right. – you have these huge pipes, these huge roads for all your information to travel. It's just they're at different frequencies. And then you keep the power low, it's all everything's gravy. But um, so that's why it's really funny when people say things like pushing COVID, right? Right. It, it just doesn't make any physical sense. No, because it has nothing to do with a virus. <laughs> yeah. So I just, just can't, you can't shoot a virus with RF. It's just an right. electron. <laughs> it's a little smaller than a, than a, than a virus. So if you think that question was dumb, here's another one for you. Hit me. Um, difference between a hacker and a cryptologist. Oh, there's a good one. So um, there's a Venn diagram right there. <laughs> okay. Where there's an over, there's probably an overlap, right? Mm -hmm. So I mentioned that sometimes cryptologists work with computers and stuff. Right. The difference would be like, so hacker is kind of a very general term. Um, that people always employ when they think about somebody who tries to do stuff with computers. But the, the, the professional term for somebody that does something like hacking is called a penetration tester. Okay. And that, that's an individual that tries to determine whether or not they can get into your system. And so you have a lot like the, the so you, have, uh, you can hire a pen tester for your private company to see if they can gain access. Um, a good friend of mine is, is a professional pen tester and he, um, that's all he does. He gets hired by companies to try and break into their networks. And so you call those individuals, the, the older term for him was a white hat hacker. So somebody right. that would, a white hat is somebody who does it with good intentions to help you identify your weaknesses. Whereas a black hat hacker is somebody who's trying to come in without good intentions, right? They're no. trying to actually just hack in. Right. No, I'm going to be, so, I'm going to be, before you go on, I'm going to be yeah. honest with you. I had lunch yeah. with a friend of mine last week. Uh, who who um, told me, you know, he's he's a part of the IT department at the University of Minnesota athletic department. Mm -hmm. And he um, said his next step is to become a white hat hacker. And that's what made me ask the question, the yeah. difference between the two, or if there was a difference or what is the difference. So, yeah. So there's, I, I think uh, another so there was a really interesting, I could give you one historical example of different ends of the spectrum in one story. So back during, in 2010, there was this person, very famous, was in the news. Uh, back then they were known as Bradley Manning, and then they transitioned, and now they're known as Chelsea Manning. But Bradley Manning was trying to get rid of, of a bunch of intelligence that they had kind of taken off of government computers, and they had... They eventually gave them to WikiLeaks, and that's how WikiLeaks initially became most famous in the public eye. Right. But one of the individuals that he hit up, um, he – I'm going to mess up the individual's real name. It was like Adam Lambeau, I think was his name. Very close, unfortunately, to another individual that has right. kind of a bad a – bad, a bad, um, did something like the, the shooter at, at um, Sandy Hook. But right. that individual – was very, very famous in the hacking community because he hacked into a major bank and was able to just get in. And then he went back to the bank and said, look, look at all this stuff. I was able to get in. Look how weak your security is. And uh, this individual was also on the spectrum. And so when he did this, they were like, dude, 
that's illegal. You can't do that. He's like, but I was only doing it to show you the weakness of your network. They're like, you can't just do it for, and just right. do it. <laughs> you have to have our permission to do that. Mm -hmm. And so we know you're doing it. Otherwise it's illegal. And so they put him on probation, but he was still very famous. And so uh, Bradley Manning and now Chelsea Manning was, was uh, basically trying to get curry favor with that individual to get their attention being like, Hey, look at all the stuff I have. And that individual is like, uh, I don't want to touch what you're doing because I'm on probation. And then he turned him into the authorities. That's how that person ended up getting arrested. Okay. Um, but that example right there is an individual. So that one person is somebody trying. So that that example of the person that was hacking in the banks for the, with good intentions without approval sometimes right. also is called a, a gray hat hacker because they're walking the line between the two, even though they had good intentions. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, well, yeah, he you said he was put on probation, so. So yeah. did he turn his? Did he turn it into a career where he was a white hat hacker? Or that individual, I don't know what they've done next. I know he wasn't supposed to be touching anything okay. regarding that right. stuff. He was. I don't know what happened beyond that because that was like twelve years ago now, right? So I don't. I just remember specifically that 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 case. But most people, they they're not supposed to be interacting with that stuff if they've broken the law. But, um, but I I've, I have friends that. So my like my buddy that is a penetration tester and he hires individuals that basically kind of like um, they do just side work doing these types of tests for people. And there's two different sides to it. You, it's what's called you have like what are referred to as like as offensive cyber and defensive cyber mm -hmm. and offensive cyber is trying to get in and defensive cyber is trying to do the forensics afterwards to figure out who got in. OK. And that makes sense because because it's like chasing down a pipe and you get down the end of the pipe. You've got to run back out that pipe to get out of there, kind of like in the Matrix when they finally hack into the network and then the, the machines are coming after them. Mm -hmm. Because once you get in, you leave a trail. Right. There is, it's, it's almost impossible not to leave a forensic trail when you're doing that kind of stuff. And that's, that's the thing that these like, defensive cyber people would do is hunt back somebody and then figure out where they came from. That's why the bulk of the time you can figure out what's happening. But a lot of times that happen coming from countries that you can't get access to. Well, you, you watch, at least I watch, shows like, uh, well, now I'm going to screw up the alphabet soup, uh, <laughs> uh, M, oh, shoot, I can't think of the name of it. <laughs> like MCIS? Yes. And yeah. They, and they have their computer specialists who's, yeah. like, trying to uh, trace down do the defensive thing and chase down all of the the information that was left by the hacker who was yeah who was breaking into things um yeah was that part of your job also me no but that was some other people would do things like that for sure okay. um but that a lot of most it companies will have somebody of that flavor anyway um or they hire specialists to come in and do that so uh, everybody nowadays it's what's interesting what i've seen that i think is the most interesting is things that back in the day would have only been specific to governments. Now you're seeing in the commercial world all over the place because everyone has access to a computer. Um, I would say if you want a really, really good example of what's accurate, watch the show, Mr. Robot. Okay. That show, that show's like spot on. <laughs> like it, it, I was pretty impressed when they started doing stuff. I was like, wow, that, that's exactly how that would work. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, the, Years ago, the guy we used to point at and call a nerd had the were the first people to you know start developing this, and it seems I, I'm looking at a chart that says the skills needed for a cryptology, uh, cryptology, which is knowledge of computers, mathematics, problem solving, organization, and adaptability. Um, so I take it all those things you have a strong background in yourself. Uh, I wouldn't at this point, probably. Yeah, I would actually say yes. <laughs> at this point, I have them. Yeah, I, I didn't start that way. I mean, when I first came in, I would say that computers were one of my weaker things when I came into the military. I really enjoyed foreign languages. I, I already spoke Japanese, so I wanted to learn another. But uh, yeah, I ended up ex I ended up enjoying the the actual cryptology element of the job much more than I enjoyed that. And then as that evolved, I began enjoying the emerging technology side. Now I work with autonomous robotics and AI for the bulk of my time. 
um, as a civilian. Yeah, no, it, it was it was kind of odd that you brought up that Mr. Robot show. I haven't watched it, but I have heard of it, and um, it. Um, um, I've heard some people talk about it. Uh, back to a statement that you made earlier. Why is data more valuable than oil? And and oil is very damn valuable right now. Yeah, no, it's more it's more valuable because you it, it allows you to market in a way that we never could in the past. You can you can market specific to the needs of every individual. You could never do that before. You were just chasing a demographic in the past, and now you're still kind of doing that. But mm-hmm. they can put something in front of you that only you are interested in. Right. And that's why. And so the advertising dollars, then they can charge for more. The other that's one aspect of it. Another aspect is. Is you have the ability to train things that are significantly more efficient because of that information. Um, But the bulk of it comes down to understanding the market and being able to anticipate and predict. Change within that within that market so that you can anticipate movement of your customers so that you can move your money more effectively. The, the best example, it would be like a quant analyst, quantitative analyst at Wall Street. That's all they want is data for that exact same reason. Because they're trying to anticipate things within microseconds. So are those people involved are those people involved in like when I I'm on Facebook and all of a sudden an ad pops up for T-shirts that has my family's last name on it. And maybe some other information that might be a little more pertinent to my family than other families. Yeah. Those are the type of things that they do. For sure. Yeah. But the company would then, what the company would just do and go into Facebook and say, I need, I'm I'm looking for people this age or this demographic for, uh, that are looking for t-shirts that are, and then you say what your company does. And then the Facebook algorithm finds those people. And it does it on IG as well. Instagram, I think, is probably more efficient now than Facebook. But it, it just depends upon the age. If you're looking for people over 40, Facebook's the way to go. If you're looking for people mid early 30s to mid 40s, and Instagram's the way to go. And if you're looking for people in the 20s and below, you go to you go to TikTok. Right. Um, yeah. So is there something that we should – we've talked about the stuff that we shouldn't be afraid of. Is there anything that we should be afraid of when it comes to this stuff? Um, I think so. When it, I think the part that we just should be afraid of is is realizing when we're consuming information that's been catered to us that isn't good for us. I think just I think 2020 is a great example of that. Is people that were afraid of one thing constantly just consuming information right. that feeds their fear. Yeah. And the algorithm will keep feeding it to you because you keep consuming it. It's when you realize that you've got on that hamster wheel and mm-hmm. you need to get off. That would be, that's the biggest thing that I could say about it. Um, in, in general, a lot of people get afraid of things like automation or they get afraid of, um, I mean, I, I hear weaponizing robots all the time, but I just kind of like, I brush that one off because it, it it's no different than anything that has already existed. But the, the algorithms themselves when it comes to what you're feeding, you get back what you feed in. So be, just be cognizant. I think the thing to be afraid of is how are you interacting with that and whether or not it's a healthy relationship you have with that device. If you're, if you, if you pull up Instagram and you can't stop for an hour, that there's a problem, right? Right. If that's, if that's what it does to you, um, then, and then try to reorient it. And it's really hard because, there might be certain images, there might be certain topics that you find more appealing. And that's that's going after a part of your brain that's dumping endorphins and serotonin into your bloodstream. And it's doing that because of the fact that in the past, historically, as we evolved as humans, that that kind of experience was rare. That's why they're so powerful. And now we're able to access it like it's heroin. And so these these algorithms feed that and being aware of it. That's That's the thing that I could say would be um, the most effective. Understand when to disconnect. It's cool, and right. you don't you don't need to constantly be feeding it, because they're going to keep catering to what you're feeding it. Yeah, I uh, my biggest weakness is Twitter, <laughs> and yeah. and right now, be, between what you just said and Elon Musk taking it over, and 
kind of running it into the ground. Um, I'm trying to wean myself off and and what I what I basically have done now is just okay, see if uh, somebody's left a message for me or or, or tweet for, you know specifically for me and then try to get off and out of it just like that you know not to, yeah or maybe look for one person who there's this guy uh uh Mr. Mr. 30 Go, he does uh, funny football uh, videos at the end of each week for college football. He mm-hmm. makes funs, fun of one of the big losers for the week. And then just and then get my St. Louis Blues information and then get off of it as quick as yeah, possible. Yeah. But yeah. it's hard. It's very hard. I think real remembering that it's a tool. Right. And if you use it, the tool for its for a purpose that is beneficial for you, it's cool. You know, no big deal. It's when you allow that device to drive your time. That's, I think, when it becomes an issue. Um, that Because then it's consuming you. Because you're the product. Remember right. that. The reason oh. why it's free is because you're the product. Right. Well. Yeah. And I've. You know, I've noticed ads on Facebook, but I've never noticed an ad on Twitter. So, and maybe I just don't. Maybe they're there. <laughs> maybe no, I they, just dumbfounded. They, they, well, they use different algorithms, and they don't. They, they're not as Twitter historically also has been kind of a uh, a bit of chaos. They've always been poorly managed as a company. That's right. just the reason why they're able to do. <laughs> the reason part of the reason why what's going on right now is because they they had such a horrible setup, um, and. and uh, but their advertising process is how they're trying to become make money, and so they did. They don't. They don't. The reason why you don't see as much is they actually aren't as good at it. But the other thing you're not seeing is they do sell all their data to people. They do, and you can gain access to it. Um, and if you just came in and said, "I'm I'm trying to buy advertising data, and I want to understand this demographic," they would sell you uh, the tweets that come with the location of every particular type of group that you're after. And you'll say you could say I want every kind of tweet that came out of this geographic area in this in this time frame associated with this piece of activity, and that you could buy it from them. And then from there, you could basically build out your advertising set for who you're after, and not even use Twitter. You could be pushing that some other way. And that's that's a lot of the way that those that how companies like that make their make their money. They they sell it straight up. And here's the but here's the scary thing is they their customers are also foreign governments. They'll say, they'll just come in and buy Twitter data. Right. And that I, I don't this is I don't intend the statement right now as anything political. Right. But but you could basically track every position of where the previous president was at any time because of his Twitter data. Um, you could see him pace the White House. Right. That's <laughs> that's a problem. That's a problem. Yeah, and that's why people <laughs> wanted him to get off of it. Like, totally. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, for a lot of reasons. But right. I mean, like. That, it was just like, just from a security standpoint, you're like, dude, in the, no, <laughs> like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, it's fine if you just had somebody on a laptop that was connected to like uh, a, a Tor server and a VPN, mm-hmm. and then that you so you can't find where it's being pushed out. And there's absolutely no positioning or information, and you only push information on that laptop at a certain time. You can't track that from a from a standpoint of anything. But that's not how that, that's not so, it, with somebody that the problem is is that's. I think that's a really good use case. This is, this is not me saying positive or negative things in that direction because I don't want to get political about it. But it's a it's a perfect example of um, not being able to disconnect from the the serotonin and endorphin rush you're getting from having access to it, and right. it, doing it to the detriment of other people. Why do you need it? Do you need it because you want people responding to it? Do you want the conversations? Do you crave it? Like or I mean, people get it for different reasons. Some people are doing it because they want to put out information. But I would argue that a lot of the time you're in one of two positions. You're either consuming other people's stuff or you're feeding an ego. And, um, and right. this, is, this is the problem why I'm probably failing as an, as an author. I'm just kidding. It's because <laughs> I, refuse, I refuse to feed the machine. You know, right. I just, I'll get on there and be like, did I get a message? And the answer is usually no. <laughs> I turn it off, right? Right. So, yeah, it, it's... It, it uh, it, it's just it's just the way that information is shared nowadays, and everybody expects it to be shared like that. Right, but it is kind of, yeah. it is kind of scary a little bit to hear that foreign governments are 
combine that. And I take yeah. it's legal because of the fine print again? Yeah, because you authorize to use them to sell the data for advertising. Okay. And that's what it is. So somebody comes in, and unless unless the government comes in and puts down regulations on how that information is sold to foreign governments, there's there's nothing stopping it. It's just business. But that's also what's kind of frightening about TikTok is they're because of where they're located, they have one primary customer. And, yeah. um, you know, and so uh, that, that's where everybody's like, dude, we can't be dumping everybody's. So and here's the other thing. So, OK, look at TikTok. Think about how much information is going inside of TikTok every day. Right. And remember how I said that data is worth more than oil. Yeah. Well, what you have in there are um, you have locations, you have people putting their faces constantly on there. So let's right. say, for example, if I'm trying to train a machine learning algorithm to identify faces, isn't it good that I just create an app that has everybody putting their face on it? <laughs> okay. And then, and then I just go, all right, take as much information as I can of all these people's faces and then put them in the database because they're posting it on there with their real names. Right. They're posting it on there with their, where they're located. They put their friends on them. Now I can correlate you and everybody that you're connected to. I can where you're located, and then I can see when you add other people into that. I can see all that stuff gets tied together, and that's what's alarming about it is because all those connections are being made on something that people are just willingly feed into it, and it's an entirely younger generation, meaning that that's going to be living there for the rest of their lives. Right. Um, just I don't want to alarm people. I don't. I, I mean, I'm, I am alarming people, but right. <laughs> Which is I, what actually I actually good. Just, well, with, when it comes to certain things, you just recognize the impact of it. It's right. you can't just. It's something that as I mean, I grew up in the. I mean, I was born in 1979, so I grew up in 80s and 90s, where you didn't have any of this stuff. You didn't worry about any of that. Nope. You know, there was no permanence to your behavior. You did something dumb; it lived with you and maybe yeah. your parents who punished you for doing whatever dumb thing you did. Mm-hmm. In this day and age, everything is documented. It's a whole. It's, it's crazy, but they willingly documented on themselves, you know, and that, that just, it's something that, uh, yeah, just, then they wonder why it pops up 20 years later when they're trying to win the Heisman trophy or. Yeah. That or, tweet they did in the bathtub when they were in eighth grade, mm-hmm. you know? So, <laughs> but it, it, it's it, what that also frustrates me on the other end because it's like, what's the limit to that? Right. Right. When they, does they were young and those, dumb. Yeah. I mean, if you judged me by what I did in high school, mm-hmm. by who I am now, come on. It's just not it's not even a thing. You know, I, I pretty much think that anybody be that way, especially. I mean, people ought to realize your brain hasn't fully formed until you're no. 25 years old. <laughs> no, I mean, that's why so, they call it personal growth. I mean, yeah, for sure. You got to allow yeah. for some of that to take place, too. Now, if they, yeah, they made those comments. Two weeks ago, that's a totally different story, and they're a full-blown right, right. adult. Yeah. But then, you know, you, you pay the price. But yeah. if you were 12, and you you basically are regurgitating something you heard from your parents or your somebody, somebody in your neighborhood, it shouldn't destroy your future. No. No, not at all. I think that. So, yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah. Go ahead. No, no you go ahead. I was going to say, I think one of uh, a colleague of mine put it this way uh, that, you know, you should seek to not offend, but also try even harder not to be offended. You know, right. That's what it comes down to. Right. So and this has kind of been joked about in comedy routines in television shows and whatnot. Is all of this stuff making us dumber in a way? (laughs) Like, did you see that ever since that movie? Uh, was it Idiocracy? Yes. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Like, we just became stupid. Um, I think so. Here's an interesting thing about it: is having direct access to information at any time can have two effects on you. If you can remember it and learn how to just make correlations with that information in an effective way, I think it makes you smarter. Okay. But if you don't have a really strong foundation of it and you rely on being able to access information at all times, and it's but it's definitely making you dumber. Okay, because I think that it you, there's really it's a couple things. I'm a big advocate of being of becoming of being a um, a critical thinker and learning how to think intelligently when it comes to the information that you gather. But I think if you're trying to say, does it make us dumber? In certain cases, it's making you dumber 
if you are gathering information from sources that are not educated themselves, like if your default go-to move when you're trying to get information is to go to TikTok or YouTube and just have some random person tell you what they what you should think, there's a problem there. Right. Right. I think in that respect, it is making us dumber because it it's feeding into certain things. So I was I started working on a book a little while ago that I think I'll publish a little later. Up and I I, I want to get it right, but one of the things I really focused on in there is the difference between anecdotal information and statistical information. And statistics are gonna give you, especially, so machine learning algorithms, for example, are all based on statistics. And statistics can be extremely accurate to give you an idea of what's actually going on. However, we as humans emotionally attached, attached to an anecdote. It's the experience of the individual that we use as an example Case in point, if I were to tell you statistically about, I don't know, the difference between men and women, you're going to give me an example. Well, I know I know that this woman can do this particular thing just as good as a man. Right. Okay. That's an anecdote. You just told me one experience mm-hmm. to say that they're exactly the same when we know statistically there's a difference between the two. Right. Right. That's just a very basic example. But I mean, you could go, I, I get in the book I'm writing, I'm getting very elaborate about it, but um, for a reason, because I... I want to go down the rabbit hole of it. Okay. And that, that's where, that's where, um, I, that's, I think what we're, we're, we're living in a world where we are fixated on the anecdote and we've lost sight of the statistical big picture. And so it, it, it and so to solve, to deal with it, we retreat farther into the, into the anecdote, into the, into the rabbit hole. And as opposed to stepping back. Right. And, and, and removing ourselves from the situation to get a bigger picture of seeing the forest for the trees, for example. Well, I've taken up more of your time than I asked for, number one. I really appreciate it. Number two, um, and I, and my dad served in the, <coughs> excuse me, in the military, and I have a nephew that's in uh, the military, uh, but I just wanted to say thank you for your service at that time. It uh, probably wasn't an easy ordeal for you. And um, nope. with everything we talked about, was there something that we may have skipped that you wanted to talk about? Uh, no, just if I could just, I mean, if any, the only thing I'd say is maybe a little plug for my book, The sure. Hawk Enigma. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's called The Hawk Enigma, and the uh, name is J.L. Hancock. It's available on Amazon or anywhere you want to listen. Um, probably been it. And I, and I appreciate the, I appreciate uh, being here and I appreciate the compliment. It's, it was an honor to serve. Sure. And uh, great having me on. Yeah. And I do see that you're listed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So, yep. Oh, I am. <laughs> I got, I have a presence, you know? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. That's what they keep telling me too. And it's like yeah, my presence <laughs> I want to be in the back corner where nobody's bothering me. That's my presence. Yeah. All right. Yeah, well, JL, this has been uh, Jim or JL Hancock yep. here on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. When you need someone to listen, a lawyer you know and trust. Hi, I'm Mike Bryant. Over the years at holiday time, Bradshaw and Bryant has been able to help thousands of central Minnesotans arrive home safely from the bars. This year, we could very well be celebrating at home, but there's still lots of things that we can do to ensure that you stay safe on the roads, like slowing down, giving yourself enough time that you're not in a rush, no texting and driving, hands-free phone calls, and of course, no drinking and driving. Please be safe so that you get home to your loved ones. I'm Mike Bryant from Bradshaw and Bryant. This year, my biggest wish is that we all remain happy, healthy, and even a little more kind to one another. A lawyer who will fight Confidence and pride Working harder Going farther With my Bryant on your side Seeking justice For the injured Bradshaw and Bryant I'm <laughs> <laughs>
Welcome back to the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Fighting an illness, but I got it in. Next week starts Christmas week, so I'll probably try my hand at, again, trying to put together a um, best of the JB's Low Tech Podcast. You know, some snippets from guests here and there. But as we enter the holiday season, uh, be safe, be smart, be healthy, and be happy. And then we'll come back at the first of the year. Or unless I get it, find a guest who would want to be interviewed to in the holidays. But if not, if not, it's probably going to be a couple of best ofs and then start all over again after the, the first of the new year and start off 2023 with uh, more new shows. As usual, I want to thank my sponsor, Mike Bryant of Bradshaw and Bryant Law Firm, uh, their support, and also my faith, faithful listeners who are always listening, thank you also. And to all of you, have a Merry Christmas, Happy Kwanzaa. If you just celebrate the season, Happy Holiday Season. And to my Jewish brothers and sisters, Happy Hanukkah. With that, this has been the JB's Low Tech Podcast with Jim Hancock, cryptologist. And it has nothing to do with uh, cryptocurrency. So with that, we'll wrap up today's show here on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. JB is my name, and f***ing up motherfuckers is my game. Right on. Negro, black, African-American, black, black, black. Django. JB. Damn. Dolomite. Great God in heaven, you know Our great Negro sex machine.